Hey, this is Stephen Jolly. Welcome to episode four of Melbourne Calling. This episode and next episode, we're going to go a little bit different than the previous three. We're going to go all left wing today. And next week, we're going to go all right wing. So today, we've got the, um, I suppose you could say, the brains of the left in Melbourne. We've got Jeff Sparrow, author, journalist, well-known activist around town. We've got probably the most prominent progressive economist in Australia right now, Alison Pennington. We've got Tom Ballard. I don't think he needs much introduction recently. I think he's been cancelled by ABC more times than um, Donald Trump has been cancelled on Twitter. And finally, we've got um, Guy Rundle, who's crikey correspondent, author, journalist, social commentator, and probably the person who's most influenced me personally in politics while I've been in Melbourne over the last 20-odd years. So we really hope you enjoy the show. We're going to be talking about the state of the nation, the state of the left. And next week, by the way, we're going to get the probably the face of capitalism in Australia, the number one, number one developer in Australia, Tim Gurner, the avocado sandwich man. So we're going to have a little bit of a little bit of a yin and yang t- today and next week, left and right, starting with the left. Hope you enjoy this show. Record it as usual at the Fitz. And um, yeah, enjoy. Hey, welcome everybody to the latest edition of Melbourne Calling and thanks to the Fitz for letting us meet here and to Doris Yancey Bottled Up Company for her, um, my favourite Chinese capitalist who's donated her best wines here for the uh, the very thin layer of left intelligentsia that exists in, <laughs> in Melbourne and in, uh, in Australia. We've got Guy Rundle here from Crikey and many, many other places. Um, Tom Ballard, um, who everybody knows, so uh, okay. no, no description. Uh, Twitter, Twitter, mention my Twitter. Yeah, fair enough. Alison Pennington, of course last week on the drum and one of the most progressive and famous economists in Australia and obviously Jeff Sparrow, author of many books, writer in The Guardian, obviously. And um, <laughs> thanks all for coming. And the point of tonight's meeting, it's like it's tonight's discussion, it's like a state of the nation, a state of the left from the perspective of four of the more prominent progressive thinkers in Melbourne at the present moment in time. And then the week after, we're going to have a totally contradictory point of view from Australia's most or Melbourne's most famous capitalist, Melbourne's most famous developer, Tim Gurner who will totally disagree with everything that you say tonight, and uh, we'll see what people have to think. But um, I just want to start with Alison. Um, we've been really, really lucky in Australia. We've had a res- no recession since 1990 until COVID, and then we had minus GDP last year. All the financial media are saying, yeah, that was bad, but we're bouncing back. Everything's hunky-dory. I mean, what is the, for, as, a, as a progressive economist, what is the situation for the Australian economy coming out of the COVID recession, or are we coming out of it at all? Well, it's un- interesting you start off by saying things were hunky-dory in the Australian economy before the pandemic because by all accounts, it was pretty shit. Like if you took out uh, the public sector activity out of the economy, private sector was near recession before the pandemic hit. Uh, so if you take all the existing trends pre-pandemic, which was private sector not investing, real wages stagnant, uh, productivity declining, um, and unsophisticated industry makeup in general, the pandemic hits and all we've got now is a, a right-wing government overseeing massive, historically high fiscal spends that are just being pumped straight into existing class relations. So existing inequalities, um, they're shoring up their base, they're attacking their enemies. And uh, it means that for a little while we have some pump priming, things look better, but actually underpinning this, uh, the current state of the economy is really entrenched problems of yeah, unemployment, underemployment, there just aren't enough jobs and workers don't have enough power to get higher wages. So overall, I think we're actually looking at, uh, I feel like 
the balance of forces, that is like the relative power of workers right now in relation to the power of organised business is like the precipice of the depression where we look at long-term stagnation if we don't have levels of organisation that we had, you know, after 10 years of terrifying stagnation. No, right? I take your point about when you were taking me up there, but I guess I'm talking about my industry, I guess, construction industry, which is probably... Uh, this is a key component of the Melbourne economy, of the Victorian economy, and we've been going gangbusters um, for since 1990. There's never been a situation um, where... I mean, Tim Gurner, when I interviewed him last week, said that the key to growth in Australia, in, in Melbourne at least, is getting 100,000 people to still come to live in Melbourne every year and to keep immigration high. That was his perspective. I mean, what, 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 I mean that's obviously quite a controversial thing amongst a lot of people. What would you, what would you say about that, the, the role of immigration... And, and, and economic growth? Uh, well, I mean, I think behind the story of immigration that is being used in this sense is about the housing market. And mm. Australian economy has depended unsustainably on construction spending and the expansion of uh, housing. And um, what was the other thing I was going to say? The construction spending and, and uh, constant Im uh, import. I want to say import's not the wrong word, right word. Um, Immigration has been used to plug the failures of the Australian economy and has done for a long while. If you took out immigration pre-pandemic, we would have been in recession. So what, what's been going on is we've been needing to bring in a constant supply of people to attach to their visa conditions to buy houses, which pumps up the construction sector. And, and developers profits. profits yeah. Exactly. And yeah. if you take out these, these um, housing and uh, like maybe extraction, extractive capital, there isn't much actually that's motoring uh, consumption spending and growth in Australia. So it's, it's not a sustainable condition. The question of like, does Australia need to bring in more migrants in order to grow? Well, that's not the case. But that doesn't mean that we should not be pro-migration because there are a lot of people who want to migrate here, um, including plenty, hundreds of thousands of people who are here and have been denied access to basic citizenship should they want it and yeah stability to to be able to be a part of Australian society. Jeff one of the big conflicts at the moment probably the most number, biggest conf, international conflict at the moment is the, is the conflict between a growing China and uh, an America that's economically degenerate but still military very powerful and we're caught up in that here with the political ties we have to America and the economic ties we have to China and we've seen in the last few weeks um, they've banned cold imports partially banned imports of grain and barley, travel warnings to Australian, to Chinese tourists to Australia, discouraging students, Chinese students, to come to Australian universities. So I mean, how, how do you see that panning out? I mean, um, and what do you think the role of, what, what, what should be the position of the left? Because we, you know, we don't support either side, really, um, I would imagine. Um, I mean, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, this, this is a long-term crisis that is coming to a head. I mean, if you think of it, Australia as a colonial settler state has always been dependent on empire. Originally, the British Empire after 1945, the um, American Empire, and that dependency has been traditionally directed against Asia. That's been the insecurity. It's a white settler state in the um, Asia-Pacific, but of course... Um, for the last few decades, the Australian economy has been really reliant on um, Chinese purchases for Australian raw materials. And for a long time, um, the Australian ruling class thought they could have it both ways. And in fact, that's still the official government policy, is that we don't have to make a choice between, between America and 
China, but of course now both the Americans and the Chinese are saying you do have to make a choice, and it's an irresolvable contradiction. I mean, you can see that you know both within the Australian ruling class, it's being fought out constantly. Um, I don't think it's conceivable that the mainstream of the Australian ruling class will break with the American alliance because it's so foundational for Australian capitalism. It has been for um, a long, long time. <laughs> but I think there are going to be ongoing ructions as this works its way um, out. And of course, for the Australian left, it's both a situation where there's intra-imperialist rivalry, but it's also taking place, of course, in the context of long-term anti-Chinese racism in Australia as well. So every time these, these debates come to a head, we see an upsurge in um, abuse of um, Asians in Australia. And I think it's really crucial that the Australian left takes a position of saying that we're not aligned with either, either, either dog in this, this fight that we're arguing for the rights of people throughout Asia and we're, we're arguing against racism here in, um, in Australia. But I think we haven't seen the end of this yet and in some respects it's one of the most dangerous contradictions in oh, so do you think it could go? I mean, do you think a military oh, conflict is all. possible? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I do. I mean, you know, look, the Australian far left has got a tendency to be apocalyptic about yeah. things. You know, we might say that there's a war immediately around the corner, but you have an American empire that is declining economically, but it still has overwhelming military superiority and has bases all through the Asia Pacific. And you have a Chinese economy that is um, growing all the time, and you know increasing pressure within China to ramp up nationalism as a way of distracting attention from internal tensions within China as well. And I think it's a, it's a very combustible situation. Tom, you've just come back from New Zealand and um, I wanted to talk to you about the way we've, here in Victoria, we've handled COVID and also you've, the experience that you've had in, in New Zealand with the way they've been dealing with COVID. I guess it's very, very different than what's happened in the States. Mm. It seems to me that one of the positive things that's coming out of it is the role of the state has been, the importance of the state as a, as a mechanism um, has been uh, brought back onto the, um, onto the front foot. How do you think that we've dealt with it here in Victoria? I mean, I know you were on Amy Therese's podcast recently and her and there's a layer of like um, Red Star podcast and people like her, um, Amy Therese from Sydney, who have got a, like a Marxist opposition to the type of COVID strategy that people like Ali um, Allison um, in my opinion, correctly argued for, you know, basically 12 months ago and was taken on in, in, in its essence by the state government. I mean, what, what's, your, what's your feeling about how we've handled COVID here and in New Zealand compared to, say, you know, the Britons and the Americas of the world? Yeah, I mean, I, I was just in New Zealand, you know, pretty briefly, but I had to quarantine on the way over there and was in Auckland and there was a lockdown uh, during our time there and it was all touch and go about whether I could return without being uh, going through quarantine and what have you. Um, the experience of quarantine in New Zealand was delightful. They're very nice, and uh, they really look after you. And there was there was Zumba classes and stuff. It was, uh, it was really sweet. Um, but it, it, and I and I got a small taste of the cultural political moment there. But you know, it is remarkable that the kind of the, these questions that were played out so much, particularly in, in the um, right wing news corp media here, of you know the economy and public health. You know, people sort of seem to, at least from my impression, recognise the very basic truth that it's important to prioritise. Um, people living and not dying of a terrible disease, um, otherwise, you know, the economy will be ruined. That sort of seemed to be a, you know, an accepted proposition, and the lack of the, Mur the Murdoch media might have some role to that role to play in that in, in, in New Zealand. 
Um, there is a leftist critique of some of the COVID lockdown politics that I'm kind of sympathetic to. I mean, the US is just bizarre. You had Anthony Fauci telling people that masks weren't effective and then had the same guy coming out and telling people to, to wear masks. I think, you know, Cuomo in New York has made some serious mistakes and is somehow sort of gaining political capital out of um, using that strategy to the detriment of the actual public health response. So I think there's, there's some decent critiques there. But ultimately, you know, the, the good side won out and people recognised, and I think the right in Victoria particularly and the right wing media underestimated Victorians' ability to see the situation and say that, yes, we are prepared to make some sacrifices for the, for the good, for our fellow citizens, even if that means that the economy needs to take a hit because the role of the state can step in and support that. Um, that, that rush back, the, the, the surge in support for the Andrews government, even though Andrews certainly made a whole bunch of mistakes, um, was quite encouraging from a leftist perspective. I think I felt like that was that was still something that we held on to. You know? What do you think about that guy? I mean, I, I saw in this morning's paper that only 0.7% of the Victorian population have been vaccinated. It doesn't seem to be such a big issue because we're not having people dropping dead, American style. Um, what's your perspective on it? On the COVID? Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting. One of the interesting things about the extreme lockdown in Victoria and the compliance with it was it's a demonstration of you know what we call the difference between positive and negative freedom you know negative freedom being uh, freedom of speech and freedom from government interference that the right talk about positive freedom being the idea that you need to be secure uh, free from disease have food etc etc in order to flourish and you know that's basically the like the left right division if you like um, and the degree to which people were willing to commit in Victoria to that positive notion of positive freedom to, to sort of the sacrifice of individual freedoms and the degree to which the people who were against that had no sort of answer that wasn't a bit crackpot um, was very interesting because it, it seemed to speak to a residual degree in Australia of a commitment to that sort of collective mm. um, social ethic, which, you know, comes from um, parts of our history and often seems to have been atomised or dissipated by uh, subsequent events over the last 20 or 30 years, but seems to be there to a degree in a way that it isn't in the US, for example, you know, culturally, specifically, um, that you can't call on it in the same sort of way. So, um, and that also speaks to really the, uh, the other sort of key aspect, which is the, the dissolution of the right, the fact and you can see this in everything from their response to the to the COVID crisis. You know, jumping from um, from sort of a libertarian standpoint of we should all do what we like to a criticism of Dan Andrews as being inefficient and not doing it strongly enough. You can see that in the match up with with what's happening in Canberra at the moment with Parliament, with with the Liberal Party not knowing whether to brush it all off or laugh it all off or disregard it or take it absolutely seriously, not not knowing whether to go to suddenly jump towards having quotas for women in their party or reject it altogether. You know, their actual, the ground of their politics, the, the, the sort of Thatcherite combination of free market economics and traditional social values and a certain idea of a certain minimal government is, is collapsing completely. 
Sadly, so too is the left. <laughs> yes. I think a good example of that, you had Adam Crichton, right, who was regularly writing articles about how we've all gone mad and lockdown is ridiculous yeah, and yeah. COVID's like the flu. And I think at one point he sort of, you know, listed the restrictions. He's in Sydney. Restrict, listed the restrictions of Victoria and said, what's the point of saving lives if we can't live, right? Yeah. It's basically saying that these restrictions are worse than death. And as someone who lived through the Melbourne lockdown, you, you just, it's just exposed as being so ridiculous, right? But then you had the lockdown, the curfew rather. Do you remember we had the point of the curfew and it sort of came out that that did not appear to be based on any kind of public health information. It was kind of a captain's call thing. Or of course the, the, the lockdown of the um, public housing um, towers uh, from the Andrews government, which I think, I think there's a very strong leftist critique of those two measures as well. So it's... Yes, a fine measure of trying to not side with, uh, with so douchebags. I'm just trying to recognise what you know when there are serious problems with that response. Can I can I also say sorry? sorry. Like the the key reason why we can compare the US and Australia is the existence of a public healthcare system. Mm. Like that is an yes. incredibly powerful institution, Medicare, for which of like if the left is looking for institutions to relate to concepts of public good that is are enshrined in civil society. Mm. It is it is a Medicare system. And that's for me, that's what the story of the of Australia's experience of the pandemic and why it's so different to the, the story of the US, including the, the very prominent role of states, because states constitutionally are required to deliver public health care. Mm. They get funding from the Commonwealth but they have to deliver it at a at a state level. So I think that's where like it ended up being through I think through the pandemic that Medicare came to enshrine democratic public good values in Australia. And that's not because it's just because it's delivered by the state, of which it is, but it's because there are, you know, thousands and thousands of workers who make up the, the public healthcare system, of which nurses are shown time and time again in polling to be just the most saintly, untouchable force to Australian people, of all when they rank all the different occupations and, you know, political groups, like nurses are just, they, they huge approval ratings, right? Yeah. Which is why I wanted them to go out on strike. <laughs> but, I, I thought it went... but they were too busy managing the pandemic, right? That's the problem. <laughs> yes. I thought it went deeper than that. I mean, in, and in a contradictory way, it seemed to me to be anchored in, in the particular history of Australia's labour movement and it's, it's the way in which it became bound up with the state very early with arbitration and, and that sort of thing. And the idea of the Australian state that developed very early, which was a positive freedom idea. I mean, honoured as much in the breach as in the delivery, but, um, but actually the idea that um, you, you, know, you do have some sort of, you have a living wage, it's not determined wholly by the market. You have um, certain responsibilities of the state. Now, the other, the problem of that um, that bound upness has always been an excessive willingness to defer to the state um, by parts of the labour movement, or yes. very large parts of the and labour movement. And to exclude movement. large sections of the population. And, that, and that's the dark side of the mm. way in which we did commit to things like, you know, the, the curfew was seemed... A lot of people... Massive police powers. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Lockdowns of entire ta tower mm. buildings. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm much bleaker about this than, than you guys are. I mean, you know, well generally supportive of the idea that we needed to have lockdowns in a public emergency. It seemed to me it was an indictment of like where we were at. Once upon a time, we, there, there would have been a left in the position to say, we will organise people ourselves. We will organise people in our communities. We will make sure that people are getting, um, you know, looked after and have masks and so on. We're not, we weren't able to do that. And so instead of that, what we have is police with massively increased powers. Mm. And one of the corollaries of that is there's been a massive expansion of the far right around the anti-COVID stuff. Mm. Like so if you look across Facebook, 
they are going gangbusters with pandemic stuff. And that's because they've been able to seize this position of saying, we are the ones who are standing up against the police. We are the ones who are advocating for freedom. I think that's but then, good. Jeff, let me ask you, to what extent do you think that Victoria was able to get through this experience because of widespread fear of police presence in the community, in locking down their, uh, shutting down their ability to communicate? I actually think that this, what's remarkable with this story is that people, it's more getting to, I think, um, these points about, like, what, pe what rights people are giving up because of our hist historical precedence of the, the wage earners' welfare state, essentially. It's more about, like, the, the, the story is millions of people decided to restrict, heavily restrict their, um, you know, their going abouts and their, their daily lives in order to reach a collective outcome. Yeah, but the difference is once upon a time when there was a crisis like that, the left would have come out of it with a reinforcement of collective organisation. So, you know, in, in during the Second World War, you know, you get a resistance that, 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 that breaks out, you know, in the middle of the war or, or whatever. There was nothing like that in Victoria. We weren't capable of, like, organising committees or delivering food or anything like that. So, in fact, what the left ended up having to do was to mm. call upon the state to do these things for us. And, OK, mm. that might have been necessary, but I don't think it's a very good thing. But there's some, there's, there's some things only the state can do, really. If you, I mean, the World War II comparison is a good one because, you know, a lot of the opposition within, you know, the, some of the opposition within the war to the war effort is rational and some of it was completely irrational. You know, so I don't, I don't, I don't think so. For, for, for instance, like with the stuff with the towel blocks, which was the most disgraceful episode of the whole lockdown, it's precisely an example of where had had there been an organisation on the left, you would have been able to go into the towel blocks and organise people within the towel blocks. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's, there's an absence of the left. Going, mm. Yeah, there's an absence yeah. of the left there. There's no doubt about it. That that you know, um, and this gets back to what you were asking. I think that um, you know there is. The left over the the Western world is is in a sort of quantum state where on the on the one hand it can be brought into being in a certain way by Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn um, or us, in a certain of way <laughs> and and, it, <laughs> and on the other hand it barely exists at all you know and and so um, the uh, the social structures that underlie it that, that used to underlie it and connect it. Uh, and make those connections possible have been worn away, uh, and so it does only come into to being by those sorts of things. So, so you're right, you know that, that you can't easily summon up a massive resistance uh, to those aspects of the lockdown that were uh, brutal and irrational. The, the clearest example for me, which I felt like made sense to some of my friends who are who you know might have different feelings about the police, perhaps, was just like. Finding people for not having masks is insane. What a rational society would give masks to people. If the problem is people aren't wearing masks, you would have, you know, members represented the state, whether that's the police or someone else, providing people with masks, material good, in order to address that problem. But because we're a nation of cops, also in the light of Black Lives Matter as well, you heard it. You're sort of saying, no, I don't trust other people. You know that 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 kind of cynicism that is that is there because of the the crumbling of social ties and a, and a very weak left to try and advocate for social solidarity. Uh, no, we need to punish people for not taking these public health measures. But there were some good news stories. I mean, I think Jeff touched on it with when the lockdown was in North Melbourne and Flemington, the public housing estates around here and the highest percentage of public housing anywhere in Australia is here in the city of Yarra, North Richmond, Fitzroy. 
Collingwood, they were all shitting themselves. They were going to get locked down. They couldn't go to work. They were desperate. They're all low income if they're working at all. And massive campaign pressure on the housing minister is also, ironically, also the local MP, marginal seat. He's got the Greens up the, of his backside trying to get the seat off him. Mm. And as a consequence, it was almost like Cuba style. Literally one morning, they turned up and there was tents outside all the estates. You know, in terms of Cuban style healthcare, I'm talking about. Right. They were giving out free masks. Um, they were like, uh, you know, it was, it was, it really lifted the confidence yeah. of public housing tenants, and it also lifted the level of organisation. Um, and so, you know, I mean, the left has never been at a weak. I don't think it's ever been in a weaker position, but it hasn't made it impossible. I think Jeff touched on that with the public housing stuff to actually have some type of fight back. Mm-hmm. But you know, the left aren't in a position to to do that. I mean, as Jeff. As this guy said, I mean, it's, it's got to be calls on the state. I think it's different here because this is the last bastion, it seems to me, of social democracy in the Western world. You've still got an industry that's controlled by the unions, by the plumbers, the sparkies, and the CFMU controlled, control the biggest industry in this state, in this city at least, construction. That's unheard of anywhere else in the world. Um, and I think that that's why they kept it going. And the union worked absolutely crucial to keeping construction going, working with management and so on. And I do think that... Um, you know, like I'm, I'd love to sit here slagging off the, the Andrews government, but I do think that a lot of the successes are because the residual power of the unions here and the, and and social democracy. He's had to listen more to the left, as in the broad left, than say anywhere else in, in in Australia. And I do think that I don't know. I just think that I don't know. What do you think, Jeff? But I just think that you might be a little bit. Don't you think that's a bit ultra left? What you're saying, like a little bit. Jeff, um, ultra. Like, I mean, where, where where is the left? What where is the left? I, I, I mean, the left have like never been weaker. The bar pretty low. Yeah, sure. The, the Andrews government did a, a reasonable job. Um, no, I'm not here to defend that. But, but where is the left that could do what you're suggesting? Like, doesn't really exist. I think exist, in the left we need the ultras just to keep pushing it. But like, I think we also have to look at politics as it presents itself, and like in a global pan- pandemic, of which we are looking at fragmenting institutions that have been under fire for decades by neoliberalism. If people consciously thought, I'm going to back in my state government because they are going to give me healthcare mm. and you know, create a, a, an environment where we can get rid of this thing that might kill me, I think that there's... We shouldn't think work is stupid as well. I think that they mm. understand that there's been you know, an onslaught at a federal level. A lot of them relate to a state-level government as like a bit of a buffer from that neoliberal program. And so, yes, like... Australians are sycophants for like policing, and it's part of the part of our you know history as being a, co- a colony and a, a convict nation. Um, but also, yeah, we also need to be always pushing the envelope and saying we want more community level organisation around things. But do we have any like ability to to roll out like you know in an hour's notice, busloads of nurses to start testing people to give out, you know. We had a PPE shortage in the country because we don't fucking produce anything. We have a manufacturing, we have no manufacturing. So that, that was actually a legitimate concern at the start of the pandemic, whether we'd have basic medical goods to, to treat people and to, you know, the right number of, like, you know, the air things, what do you call those things? Ventilators, Ventilators and, right. <laughs> and masks. Yeah. CSL will save us. I, 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 I don't disagree with that, but I, I, I don't think we should bullshit to ourselves or to other people about where we are at. Like, I don't think we had too many other options during the pandemic. Yeah. But that's not that's a good what thing. I mean. <laughs> I mean, there were times when the left did have other yeah. options. Yeah, the socialist alternative, for all their faults, they, they were crucial to some of the victories at um, Flemington and, 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 and um, back in the, the original outbreak in the public housing estates there. 
them and also their ex-members who are now in NGOs, I think they played a really important role, which has been not really picked up in the media. And then, then we, we here in Yarra then leaned on that to have our win. Um, so, but to be fair, they didn't try to do it themselves. They tried to pressure the state government and the NGOs to step in and relatively successfully too, I think, you know. But can I just move on to the omnibus? One of the things that sort of slipped through the radar a little bit in the COVID, um, Ali, was the uh, omnibus bill. Um, obviously, it's been watered down in the Senate. Somebody described it as wounded but not buried. Just very briefly, why was that a danger to the union movement? Is it, is it over? Um, and I noticed one of your tweets, you, you mentioned how Biden the other day has removed <coughs> bans on secondary boycotts, which like, and I'm the biggest critic of Biden, you know, the 14, you know, $100 checks and, you know, refusing to back a $15 minimum wage and all the rest of it. But that puts him to the left of the Labour Party. I mean, that's totally illegal in Australia. Yeah. So where are we at with the omnibus, omnibus bill at the moment? Is it all one and gone? Everything's fine or what? Oh, well, it was uh, gutted for the most part. Um, but the main cornerstone of the bill that business lobbyists were pushing for the hardest to create the bill to start off with pre-pandemic did get through the Senate. Uh, so that was changes to the definition or the introduction of a new definition of casual work uh, that basically completely extinguishes the conditions or the, the two cases that the CFME were prosecuting at the federal court level, uh, was the work pack and the Rosado cases. And what those cases showed was employers who were using labour hire to put a worker next, next to a permanent worker, employing them just like a permanent worker but paying them as casual on lower wages and no entitlements, they had to actually treat them like a permanent and, and be covering that bill. So that, after those decisions, opened up an, uh, an obligation to employers worth up to $40 billion. And so they've been pushing really, really hard before the pandemic started to um, extinguish those precedents and uh, basically expand their power to use, use casual work. So that part of the bill, the casual changes, did get through in the omnibus bill. Uh, it got through the crossbench after One Nation saying that they were gonna block it then went along and then Sterling Griff from Centre Alliance also voted it up and he will not be coming back um, for another um, term, I do not think. Um, but there are other wish lists um, items that the business lobbyists put onto that bill which didn't pass, which is, yeah, good, but I've got like high expectations. I'm still pretty disappointed that the bill got through, um, but they're gonna come back for trying, the government wants to bring back those measures um, sometime next year, but then they will be fighting on industrial relations in, industri in, the, um, in the election. I'm not sure if they'll do it, but. Those other changes, the reasons why unions could go out so hard, would make um, extinguish the better off overall test. So that's the thing that says when you bring an agreement forward as an employer, it has to do better than the awards, the minimum wage, the, the, the system of industry minimum wages. So they were going to abolish the boot and make it easier for employers to pass non-union agreements. So agreements without any um, role of a union in negotiating the terms and conditions. Um, those, those measures were blocked, as well as eight-year Greenfields agreements, which are particular in the construction sector, um, as well as all their wage theft compliance measures, which they just took off the table when they realised that they weren't going to get their way, um, and uh, changes to awards that cut rates and pay for part-time workers. Um, those measures will come back probably next year, but, you know, I mean, it depends on whether the Coalition want to fight an election on industrial relations. I think that the Labor Party would probably prefer that, and of course unions would prefer that too. So that's just, just, just while you're talking about unions, if you just keep going there for a minute, I mean, what is the way back for the Australian trade union movement? It seems to me that you've got some unions, like I say, plumbers, wharfies, 
um, electrical trade union, obviously the CFMU, the construction division of the CFMU, there are unions in the old sense of the term, that you have to have a union ticket before you can start work, they, they, they police jobs, the, the delegate walks around, um, they control the industry essentially while you've got other unions, and this is not an attack, it's just the reality because of the anti-union legislation, where it, they're more like, um, like they, they just tweet about workers' issues, you know? Um, not, and again, I'm not having a crack. I mean, they, they, they're, take, they're taking, um, you know, they try to influence, you know, and they're trying to influence the Labour Party on, um, to be more pro-worker and to be stronger on industrial relations issues. And, but on the ground, have not as much power as they may have had 10 or 20 years ago. I, think that, I don't think that's a very controversial statement to make. And we obviously have the most anti-union legislation in the advanced capitalist world. I think that's fair call to make. Well, we've, we've so I mean, what's the road a, back? If, you know? Just quickly, just to add to that, we've also got a union sitting at the centre of the union movement, the SDA, which is really a company union for, you know, the large corporations like Coles and Woolies. Um, you know, so you've got this, and it, which has tremendous power on the Labour Party, tremendous power in trades halls. So that shifts, you know, a lot of the potential militancy of the union. Well, I mean, to the extent that retail stays as a part of the Australian economy, but like what's happened with the decline of unionism is it's not just things internal to unions, it's also a massive structural change in our economy. Like at the base of the union movement was, was manufacturing. That's where we had our power. Mm. And that's capital intensive. Organised labour at the side of production, capital intensive production, is powerful. And that's, we could build our base out of manufacturing. Manufacturing has collapsed in the last, you know, since the 80s. And what we've had since is an explosion of private services, particularly government funded social services. So the average union member today is a, a woman in her 30s in community social services sector. And yeah, their unions are still finding their feet. But, you know, like struggle takes time. And I, I do think actually the future of Australian unionism will be female-dominated unions in female-dominated industries because Australians expect healthcare and social services, they expect the elderly will be looked after, that kids will be looked after. Um, and, you know, that's, that, I have to make that overarching structural comment. But right. of course we are suffering from the, you know, decisions made decades ago to, uh, like, forge agreement with, with business and fortify that in the state that has, um, over time, cut the legs out of organisation, uh, left us organising and negotiating at an enterprise level. It's been very easy for employers to carve up their production chains and just make it impossible to organise in an enterprise bargaining system. Um, as well as overall, like, you know, decline in the capacity and knowledge and fight. Um. Jeff, we've got the strictest anti-strike legislation in the Western world. I mean, you're only allowed to strike during EBA negotiations, and even then, there's lots of outs for the bosses, which they often take up. How do you think that can be dealt with when you've got, like, a Labour Party that doesn't seem, at the moment at least, to be that keen on reversing those changes that were ironically brought in by the Keating government and the whole government before them? Well, I think Sally McManus was right in the first interview she gave when um, she took on her new position. I mean... These laws have to be have to be broken, and you know that got her into all sorts of trouble at the time. But in fact, if you look at the history of the trade union movement, most of the major strikes in Australian history have been illegal, and most of the successes of the Australian labour movement have come through um, illegal strikes. And it's that's the way that these laws will be made a um, dead letter. Unfortunately, it's got to. We've allowed things to get to the point now where 
you know, I, I, I think that we'll probably end up with a situation where someone ends up going to jail in order to defeat um, defeat these laws. But I think that kind of that 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 um, has to happen. And there's no anyone who tells you that they've got a magic formula for rebuilding the left or the trade new movement, you know, is 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 lying. If we knew the answer to that, we'd be doing it rather than sitting in a pub talking <laughs> <laughs> talking about it. But it's got to actually start with struggle, doesn't it? I mean, that's a union movement that can't strike is not a union movement, mm. is a professional association. And so we have to win back those rights to strike and that means we have to strike. Mm. Were you surprised by the NTEU and how that... I mean, you, you would think that if any um, conditions or, or, or situation in which some more radical moves would, would take, would, would have been 2020, right? Would have been last year. Um, and I know there was, you know, a huge split within the NTEU and the fightback and, and a lot of um, disapproval of their uh, pleasing of the of the bosses or sitting down with management there. But like the way that the university sector was absolutely crushed last year and, and the kind of effect, the lack of support from the federal government. Um, I don't know. Were you surprised that, that there wasn't more radical action there? Look, I mean, I think there is a tremendous lack of confidence, isn't there? I mean, mm. this is one of the problems that that that. Um, we're facing in the union movement we we've allowed things to get to the point where in industries like education that are being absolutely devastated a lot of people no longer believe that it's possible to save jobs a lot of people no longer believe that it's possible to do um you know to to defeat governments or to do anything more than to just register your disapproval of something that's already going to happen and again i think that's the importance of like of the dramatic action of the the crisis that brings things to a head and shows people that actually it is possible to win something and i think that's the flip side of the situation that we're in at the moment well in a lot of ways it's a pretty bleak time that we're living we're living through i think you could also say there is not a great deal of enthusiasm for the status quo it's not like a time like the 1980s where there's a substantial section of the population who actually thinks capitalism is a mm. fantastic system that's going tremendously well. The problem is that people aren't just aren't convinced that there is any kind of alternative. And it seems to me the moment there is an inkling that there is some kind of alternative, I think the consequences of that will be explosive. And, you know, we saw that with things like Black Lives Matter, which, you know, they um the largest ever demonstration in the United States history, and that happened last year. Well, you know, that's not a bad thing. Mm. And it shows that the potential is is there if we can grasp it. And that raises the question, doesn't it, of how people imagine the social and whether how deep and how close to the surface these, these problems are. We can talk about the, the institutional and political choices the union movement made in the 80s and, and beyond, but if, if it's possible that if there wasn't a deeper social structural shift which, is, which was making militancy less likely to occur, then it would be happening already. Um, the, the, the question that, that's thinking about what's possible and that sort of thing and the left has to ask is the degree to which things like, you know, um, large physical workplaces, you know, were essential to trade unionism, um, shared hours, things like that, and the degree to which the basic social atomization of, of social life creates situations uh, in which people are just 
collocations of individuals um, who can all feel uh, pissed off with something but can't then find, even when they're together, they can't then find the, the necessary uh, momentum to keep things going. I've been talking to a lot of people trying to organise primary and secondary teachers to be more militant, you know, and teachers were fairly militant for a long time, yeah. and they should be. And now people will say, well, if they're trying to organise a primary school, a lot of the teachers don't even really know what a union is. Mm. You know, they think it's some sort of thing that takes their money out, you know, of their pay packet and is someone you can call for certain things. But the imagination of, of starting a strike from the workplace as opposed to responding um, to, to a directive once every 10 years has gone. And that connects really to, to the other problem, which, you know, related to labour and, and to what I was talking about, about the specific history of Australia, which is that, you know, a union movement became early on so tied up with arbitration, statism, etc., on one dimension, that the ultimate, the final destination of that was really the Gillard Government and the Fair Work Commission, mm. uh, you know, which was the long-desired um, uh, goal of labour lawyers to have a... a, a industrial relations movement without any unions involved. <laughs> you know, that was their sort of dream. Yeah. And they put it in. It wasn't the Liberals that put it in. It was, it was Labor and Labor lawyers. So, Guy, what you're, what you're suggesting is that there's some natural trend or tendency to when Labor builds power and fortifies it in the state, it must end up in the Fair Work Commission. It must end up in the modern awards. I think what we've, what we've seen is a you know, historically world-leading labour movement in Australia to which, you know, people like Lennon looked at and said, what is this socialist, you know, uh, fantasy over in Australia? And it's because we, we had yeah, built... Yeah, he was critical of that. But the, but the point is that we built a, a, this, the conciliation arbitration system was incredibly powerful. What it did was it backed, used the, the power of the state to say workers striking in any one industry could achieve a wage outcome that was generalised for all workers in that sector. That yeah, is power. it was very partial, but it was, yeah, it was power, but it was also a lack of power. It sucked the contestation out of the system. It sucked the idea of, of long strikes, um, you know, strikes where you had to turn up in the American manner and actually win the territory. It, it took all that out, and what really gave the union movement a militancy for decades was communism. It was obviously the Communist Party. Organizing. But they used arbitration. They, 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 they used militant action, but they leaned on arbitration as yeah, well. Yeah, but they I mean, were also willing to, as Jeff said, have illegal strikes. They were willing to, to break with the legality <coughs> when it suited. But in weaker areas, they were using arbitration yeah, exactly. to, 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 but that's to spread those but wins what, in the stronger yeah, areas. Yeah, the other side of the union movement wasn't doing that. It was using the arbitration system. Usually, it in itself, well, yeah. often to discipline its own members. I, I want to come back to attack Guy from a different angle. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are. You're actually on a different angle. Well, <laughs> okay, going back to something that, 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 that Guy said right at the start in terms of the, um, the changes in the workplace that make industrial organisation um, impossible. I was just, just reading about the... Um, I didn't say impossible. More, more, more yeah. difficult. I was just reading about the new unionism in Britain um, in the end of the 1880s and it's really fascinating because of course you know they're, they're talking about the need to unionize these impossible industries these industries that nobody could organize because the conditions are so difficult that we can't have any solidarity there's people from different occupations no one has any security there's you know everyone's on casual the industries that they're 
talking about a construction and the docks. And these become the heartland of both, you know, English trade unionism and Australian trade unionism. It's not the physical location. It's not the conditions of work. It's the politics and the industrial organisation that makes difficult that makes things difficult. And if you think of the current conjunction, uh, um, we now have, you know, communication systems and interconnectivity that people in the 19th century could only dream about. Were literally science fictional. It seems to me the organisational problems now are, are much more easily solved than they ever were in the they're past. More, the problem as is, problems, they're more easily solved. But if if we have all these things which connect us up in these whiz bang ways, why didn't we? Why have? Why has it taken so long for you know a union movement to rebuild itself in areas like Amazon and things like that, which is just happening at the moment? Why has there been that decades gap? That's got to tell you that the mere efficiency of those communication systems. Uh, doesn't necessarily help if the atomization effect works against your ability to organise. Ah, see, this goes back to the point that you were being attacked upon before. We were, we're, we're actually agreed with you, <laughs> which is the consequences of the you know the, the, the years of class collaboration through things like the Accords that have totally destroyed, you know, the, the sense of a trade union that actually organised against the bosses as opposed to just simply. Yeah, but I have to disagree with you. Oh. Disagree with disagree with me. I, I think that is. I love everyone. I think it's just great to have a great chat. I think that is the lesser part. I think that top part of the content is the lesser part of the deeper structure form. I think, yeah, I think things can be reunionised, especially in Australia when the contradictions emerge between the lifestyle people have been promised over the long uh, period without a, an ostensible recession and the reality. I think there'll be a big crunch. But there will be very specific problems about the different forms of subjectivity and individuation uh, that have occurred uh, in terms of how people actually get together. You know, when you were organising dock workers and things like that in the late 19th century, they were still used to going to meetings, whether they were meetings of a church group or that sort of thing. They, they were still... No. Yeah, they, of course no, they no, were. No. They, no. Oh, look, I'm going to intervene now. Of course they were. They didn't really what's your perspective on this? It is absolutely true that business formation, organisational trends, how capital operates is drastically different to any other time, Right. We have micro-businesses exploding. 250,000 micro-businesses have grown in, in like the last 10, 15 years. We've this is lost, why you're here. It's bringing yeah, yeah. We've lost, we've lost like firms that employ more than 200 workers. We've lost uh, like 2,000 of these. We've lost lots and lots of large firms and we've got lots and lots of tiny firms. How, what do you tell a 7-Eleven worker um, who is in a tiny franchise and they, you say, go bargain with your boss and it's someone who's from their migrant group who's actually exploiting them or is also exploited. Like the concept of taking on the bosses, very fucking hard in the conditions that capital is created right now. That doesn't mean that we don't like identify different trends of how capital organises and fight for ways to organise to reel them in. But it's, it is much harder in those conditions. Another thing to think about is the, the traditional basis of unionism is craft and pride in your trade, pride in what you create. And how many people can say, um, you know, out walking around like human billboards and giving out flyers that they feel really proud of that job and they're going to fight a boss to make that job better. I think we've got lots and lots of really fucking shitty jobs out there of which that's a problem for us. How do we inspire those people to fight? Is it through their workplace or the street? 
or is it through you know civil society organisation? How do we fold those people into organisations? So just just Tom and then and the guy, and then we'll move on to the next thing. Yeah, I just have two quick, really quick questions for Alison. I heard that the ACTU was saying that during last year there was an upsurge of union membership. Yeah, I'd be interested sorry. to hear whether that was true. And secondly, what I would be interested to hear what you'd make of Labor's response for those portable benefits ideas for gig economy workers, and whether there's some hope there. Mm. I think the portable entitlements concept is good. It's the same thing, that's where superannuation came from. It was the idea that a worker could move from job to job yeah. and everywhere they went, employers had to make a contribution to their retirement. Um, it is a form of redistribution. I think it's, it's portable entitlements is a good idea for those, you know, footloose, fancy free kind of NDIS areas and um, places where workers move around a lot. Um, what was the other question? Union membership. membership. Yeah, look, like a big part of building unions is like making yourself you know, big up in yourself, especially <laughs> in times of crisis. I think that compared to how many members were lost with like the, sh the, the shutdowns of large sections of the economy, um, including casual workers who did not necessarily have access to JobKeeper, I think it would be like unions lost a lot of members, but they would have had an influx of people who were interested in organising and fighting. Uh, the statistics show, ABS recent statistics show that um, union membership declined again in the last uh, couple of years. So, but it's a little bit out of step with the pandemic. But generally, we're looking at below 10% in the private sector, which is um, yeah, pretty not too good at this point. Yeah. Jeff? Oh, the only thing I should just say about that is the things that we associate with those heavily unionised industries were created by the unions. They didn't allow the unions um, to build in them. So if you think about think about industries like the mining industry or like the docks or like construction, if, if you go back to the 19th century, there's no pride in working in those places. They were disgusting mm. places to work and most of the people who worked there were casuals who were hired on a day-by-day -day basis. The thing that allowed people to feel pride in belonging to this place and have a sense of community was the fact that they had a trade union and that's the problem it, it's not that the jobs that people do now are such that they can't feel pride in them the things people do are necessary to provide goods and services for people of course you can feel pride in them the problem is that we're not able to organize and we're not able to provide people with de decent conditions and wages and that's a political problem Alison um on a more positive note, I mean, we've had in the last few days and weeks this rebellion of Australian women. I mean, triggered by the obviously the, the behaviour in Parliament House and Canberra in general. But I noticed uh, I watched you on the drum the other day, and you spoke quite concretely about what you thought would be, you know, the way forward: lifting income support to above poverty rates, providing proper decent funding for domestic violence services, opening shelters, walking the walk. I mean. What's your take on this recent movement and what, it, what do you think is the, is the way that the left should be taking it up moving forward? Uh, I think this is like our pink hats reckoning moment in Australia. Like always, Australia is you know, five, six years behind <laughs> the rest of um, you know, behind the US and the UK. And in that sense, it is a, uh, a cross-class women's response to entrenched sexism. Um, what's kind of, I mean, Trump had his moment too. There was, there was a part of the response to that was like having uh, like a outlandish and sexist in that position of power and we have the same sort of conditions. Um, I guess my focus has been in my interventions to try and point out the economic basis of violence. Uh, and, you know, one easy, I think, good angle on this was the superannuation is issue because the government has been trying to dismantle the system from, I mean, that's part of its program since, the co since COVID hit, it doubled down on that program. 
And one of its measures was to give domestic violence victims access to raid their super accounts um, to flee violence. And of course, you know, that was a, a big flag moment for the second wave feminists to say, like, there should be welfare supports and income supports and shelters. Like, the domestic violence was a big part of... And that was a, a, a concretely economic program. Uh, so that was like one of the, the clearest examples, I think, of what has been a, an anti-democratic, neoliberal program of the current government, which is, you know, like all, uh, I guess, political offensives, it has to become more and more unrepresentative of the people that it supposedly represents in order to pull off its agenda. And that's why they are a small group of, like, fuckwits from Sydney private schools who went <laughs> to the same university and are just, like, abhorrent characters, right? Um, and you never look at debating societies <laughs> the yeah. same way again, would you? The same, the same members of the. Of, well, they're all yeah, in. They're yeah. all in debating. Which for me is just wild. By the way, who went to fucking debating societies? Like, who did this? Which part? I think this part of Australia is so foreign to well, me. Well, everybody is now an MP. I mean, it was just <laughs> that's part of the political class, isn't it? That unless you basically join the Liberal Club or the Labor Club on day one of university, you know, you can forget being in the cabinet. Yeah. You know, that's that's how stratified by and large you know, our political class has become. But I think just over and overall, I'd say there's actually a huge opportunity for the left here. Like, I think, unlike in the US, where all of that energy got, like, pushed straight into electoralism and behind Hillary uh, and, you know, representation politics, basically, I think that actually in Australia, coming off the pandemic and the public health response, we have a lot to tap into in terms of a public good, public health public sector response, government-funded response to gendered violence, um, of which, you know, it's about services, about DV services, about income supports for people fleeing violence, but it's also about pointing the finger at government that is prosecuting an economic war against working-class women and has, has been doing for a long time. What makes women vulnerable to violence is having no fucking incomes and no decent jobs mm. and, you know, on single parenting payments where they're dependent on dickheads like to, in order to feed their families. And I think like we need to be, we can point to those things and we, we can point out in this time of crisis that the government is failing on like lots of fronts. And power in the workplace too, right? Yeah, like, exactly, like, I mean, yeah. it's, this is why I, I tear my hair out when I watch these news, the news reports and these discussions from members of the Liberal Party saying that this is beyond politics, as if this isn't a question about power and class in the workplace. It's like, you cannot be serious about this issue when you're a member of a political party that has waged a 70-year war on organised labour, mm -hmm. and if you care about women's safety and protection from shitty, creepy bosses in the workplace, I mean, you should be telling everyone to join a union, right? Mm -hmm. You should be telling people to get organised and have some kind of bulwark, some, some protection against the power that is inherent to the relation, the hierarchical mm -hmm. relationship of a, of a workplace, um, which is why it's kind of a dead end, I think, talking to, li to people in the Liberal Party and the Liberal government about about seriously addressing this issue because well, it's, it's that's of course the question, getting isn't it? I mean, one of the problems of this, this movement in the last few weeks is it's pretty elite dominated. Mm. I mean, its agenda is pretty much about what happens within the elites to, you know, professional women and that sort of thing. And they've got a right to represent themselves and talk about what's happening. But, but you know, the, the, as you say, the cross-class alliance and that sort of thing, all that economic stuff is largely crowded out, mm. and what we're what we're getting, you know, often uh, by want of omission of, of what you're talking about in the in the public press or wherever, is the flow towards um, addressing these issues with more policing, more surveillance, more carceralism, 
and and more of this idea which seems to have, have you know um, become dominant without much proof that it works that very large amounts of counseling men uh, will change behavior mm. you know um, there, you know there isn't a lot of evidence that that works except with the very worst sort of men but that has become the very dominant structure of what should be done as opposed to, to what you're talking about and and the fact that you know some of this a lot of this movement is now led by liberal women you know it sort of explains that you mean like big L or small L uh, uh, well, bit both, but but, but so I, think, I think that that's the part of the story is that they, the party is falling apart. Mm. Like none of their own in, in their own ranks, women aren't willing to come out and speak either. So I think it's, and I I don't think this is necessarily this is why I think there's actually some hope in Australia to expand this discussion and for left to make some space in this because I think people leading the protest rallies on the streets are um, are working women. And who are from often from the DV sector, people who are, you know, like violence is something that it's it's a weird thing for us to be only looking at the discussion happening in the upper ranks um, among elite women because of course as working class women who've experienced this fucked upness of of the world we live in, to be in a position where we're like, fuck yeah, like how did you ever think these cunts were on your side? You know, it's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like a weird position to be in, but like I think. It, we, I think it, there is space for us to expand that conversation out and make this about the economic conditions of women overall, of which women have done worse coming out of the COVID pandemic because of the choices of government to, you know, not basically not back in their jobs and throw, throw like cut them out of job seeker, out of job keeper, cut job seeker back, of which it, women depend on most, um, unemployment benefits and things like that. Jeff, just just um, Alison spoke about Trump. I mean. If we look at, I just want to talk about the right for a minute. Um, if you look at the America, the Republican Party has fundamentally changed from sort of like a neoconservative mainstream, you know, right of center party to this sort of right wing populism under Trump. I mean, he's not there, but he still controls the party, at least the base. Um, do you think that the liberals in Australia, I mean, they just got wiped out in WA. Um, they only control two states now. I mean, the, the, the polls today, they, they dropped this morning. Um, do you think they're going to move in the same direction? And while you've got the floor, if you like, the far right, um, you've written in Guardian about the inability of the far right in Australia to get a mass base and therefore in desperation then potentially moving towards like a terrorism um, and militarism. I was just wondering if you could just comment about how the direction that the right is going to take in Australia, in your opinion, in the next period. Yeah, so in the Liberal Party, I think one of the problems the Liberals have is the energy within the Liberal Party is coming from the far right, yeah? So the, the, the young Liberals, that's the, that's the stuff that, 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 that gets their juices flowing. It's, you know, alt-right bloggers from America and all that sort of stuff. And so I think one of the reasons why, you know, um, Morrison has been so wrong-footed by all the orgies and so forth happening in, 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 in Parliament is because he, he, he knows within the Liberal Party that... Um, if he takes a stronger stand against any of us, he'll, he'll, he'll come up against, you know, the activists in the party who are hardcore ideological sexists who are, you know, recruited into the young liberals on this sort of agenda of, like, you know, Milo Yiannopoulos-style anti-feminism. And that's now a defining thing of any liberal club you go to or any university. That's, that's what they organise um, around. But there's a distinction, I think, between the alt-right and the genuine um, 
the genuine fascists and you know the, the the fascists had their kind of moment in the sun in 2015 2016 when it seemed like that they were going to come out from the internet where they had managed to build a substantial base and try to bring this to the street and in australia it took the form of the united patriots front in america we saw the you know the unite the right um, rally in charlottesville in both cases there was a substantial mobilization against these um fascists on the street which pushed them back and so far in the english-speaking countries at least they've been capable of building a genuine kind of political formation and in frustration they are turning to all kinds of um you know extra parliamentary manifestations including um terrorism now it's not necessarily the case in 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 continental Europe where there are certain countries where the the genuinely fascist right are breaking through and so yeah it's it's not out of the question that this could this this could happen both in you know in America in Australia but as yet that's not the case but um in some in 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 some ways um in the short term they pose more of a danger as a kind of you know, um, fascist tendency. The whole point of the Christchurch um, perpetrator was to inspire other people to mm. follow him, and he's so far been able to do that successfully on a number of different occasions. So, yeah. Can I ask? Can I have you the question? Ask a question. Sorry. What do you think about the the rise and fall ish of One Nation in relation to the politics of Anurang? They're not, yeah, they're I mean, I think, fascists, they're more I think it's in some respects in Australia we've been blessed that that that, that um, racial populists in this country have been represented by such an incompetent figure as Hanson. Mm. That, <laughs> you know, in some ways that the mm. opportunities were all there for a real mm-hmm. um, breakthrough. But the bushfires as well. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But you know, they're so internally dysfunctional. She's such an egoist um, that that they're not able to capitalize on it. But you know. One shouldn't count one's blessings on that. I mean, surely it's a matter of time before somebody more competent steps up to... to just, just, just one question, though, Jeff. I mean, sorry, sorry go ahead. Did no, you... I was just going to say, unless we can fill the space, I'm just saying. Just being um, positive about it. <laughs> my favourite podcaster, Matt Christman from Chapo, he's, I think he's by far the most far-sighted of, of all of them, and they're pretty far-sighted. He said that the Capitol Hill thing, like Silicon Valley, the media barons, Wall Street, have turned on the extreme end of Trump's base post then. Um, and you've seen here in Australia, ASIO now talking about, oh, we're going to keep an eye on right-wing terrorism just as much as we do on Islamic terrorism. Do you think that we're the section of- We're not going to call it right-wing terrorism. No, we're not yeah, going to call yeah, it, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. But nevertheless, do you think that that- and The Nazis that, are socialists. That impact in your analysis, <laughs> that the, the state or sections of the state are a little bit worried about this sort of far right, that the, 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 the growth of right-wing populism and- oh, It's like the militant tendency of, of right-wing populism. You know, no, that they, they need to smash it. I, I think it confirms um, mine up. I, mean, I would say that, wouldn't I? But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in, in a different situation, if we we're in a period of crisis, you might start to see segments of the state start to think, well, you know, maybe these fascists go a little bit too far, but they're useful in terms of breaking strikes or crushing the left or whatever. There's no sign of that at the moment. Actually, you know, that. Um, Nobody in the Australian ruling class is particularly enthusiastic about national socialists at, at the moment because they don't see them as, as necessary in any way, shape or form. There is, I mean, I, I don't know, it, it's hard to tell how much impact this has, but I get extremely concerned when you hear stuff like the Sky News YouTube channel 
is the has the highest number of subscribers than any other media organization yeah. in Australia. Like that is that is remarkable. Because I know we all like see the wacky clips pop up now again, but you've got Lauren Southern on there. You've got wow. you know some seriously unhinged, wild ideas being being kicked around on those that you know um, on um, Fox Foxtel or whatever probably didn't get shit or ratings, but yeah, those clips are going viral. They're going viral around the world, and they have a huge audience um, um, in this country, which tells you that there is some. Yeah, some purchase on those ideas. That it's, it's, a, it's, it's a fucking wake-up call when you look at those um, those charts of the most popular um, the most popular posts on Facebook. It's consistently Craig Kelly, Christensen, yeah. Pauline Hanson, um, all those other. Like, it's a considerable underground, isn't it? But yeah. once again, it's a question of, I mean, as you say, we have had this twenty-five years since Hanson got into power. They've time and time again, they've had an opportunity to consolidate mm. a political movement mm. and they've either failed or they've gone for the money or they've gone for the hucksterism or they are run by psychologically deranged individuals. One, one after another, they've fallen away and they've never got the critical mass. But what is the absence in Australia of the critical mass that is elsewhere that allows these things, even the American, you know, uh, groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and that sort of thing can actually get themselves together to be some sort of collective movement. And, and there is, you know, there is, is an absence of it here. Now, it might be one of those historical things where, as you say, it suddenly comes together all at once. You know, suddenly all these people come out of their living rooms and, and they're, all they're doing is watching Sky News and, and that sort of thing and grousing to themselves. You know, I noticed when... Um, you know, at the Australian Open, when Dan Andrews was introduced or something like that, there was this huge amount of booing, you know, mm. that sort of thing. And you go, oh, that seemed kind of interesting. Mm. You know, there's something there. Um, but but I, I think it's a really interesting sociological question that needs answering why this distinctive absence of a, of a critical mass. Mm. Well, for fear of being called a vulgar Marxist. I mean, I think one obvious explanation is simply that the crisis in Australia isn't nearly as severe as, you know, you, you go to the United States and it really feels like a failed state. Infrastructure yeah. falling apart all around. Australia's not like that, actually, you know. Yeah. The Australian economy's been doing pretty well for a long time. Australian standard of living is, is um, fairly high. But, you know, it brings me back to this, the conversation we're having around um, COVID. So I, I did an interview with... Um, a woman who was involved with one of the, the, the um, COVID conspiracy um, websites. And um, firstly, I was blown away by how huge these things are and the, the amount of traffic that they, they get for, you know, stuff that starts out with, you know, discussions about alternative health treatments and quickly escalates New World Order and Illuminati and mm -hmm. Protocols of Zion or whatever. But... When I talked to her about, it, like, how did this start? She said, well, you know, like, I wasn't really that political, but, you know, I'm just a working-class woman in, in, in Frankston and um, I like to help people. And my friend came to me and she said she'd been to this demonstration and they'd been kettled by the cops and had the fuck beaten out of them. And I went to the next demonstration and the same thing happened to us. And because, like, actually, the, the, the laws that were introduced around COVID were really extreme... Mm. And, you know, it opened the way for this right-wing, libertarian, anti-cop discourse that was really attractive to a, a bunch of working-class people. And um, they've really built an infrastructure on Facebook, you know, pivoting off that into the usual kind of far-right conspiracy theories. 
And um, I don't think that it's going to lead to, you know, jackboots on the streets anytime soon. But like I said, it's kind of bubbling away under the surface. But I'm also interested, just quickly, I'm, just to, I'm also interested in the fact that, you know, as you say, you know, it's about prosperity as, as regards America and Australia. But, you know, Sweden, for example, the Sweden Democrats who are fascists are at, you know, 15, 17%. They came from nowhere and they developed. They developed within the whole European far right, North European far right, developed out of nothing. And, you know, obviously immigration and that sort of thing was their, um, was, was their sort of the free movement of the EU was the thing that they focused on initially. Um, but it, it's still an interesting thing to me that, that we are almost singular in this, that in every other country, this sort of far right has developed from either one side of the politics or the other, one, one principle or the other, and we just haven't got it yet. And that's not something for um, uh, complacency, because I fear, I fear this sort of, that it's, a, you know, thing becomes its opposite sort of moment, that it'll just suddenly come into being full formed. We have to finish up soon, so I wanna, I wanna end up by talking about the way forward, potentially. I mean, if you're a 20 year old kid, you're at uni, you're politicized by climate change, by world poverty and all the rest of it. I mean, it seems you've got a choice. You can join, you know, a Trotsky's organization, like something like Socialist Alternative or Socialist Alliance or whatever, or you've got on the other hand, the Labor Party and the Greens. Um, and um, I guess it's a little bit different in America. You've got the, the Democratic Socialist Alliance, you've got 100,000 members in between. Um, and it's like a third option. We don't have anything like that in Australia. So let, let's, let's just start with the Greens. Like I've got a lot of time for Adam Bant. Um, I knew him when he was uh, a wild uh, uni student at La Trobe University. <laughs> He's now a very responsible leader of a, of a minor political national party. Um, He's trying to, it seems to me, he's trying to turn them into, a, into like a left party, a, so, a social democratic party to the left of, of the Labour Party. You, Tom, recently joined the Greens. What attracted you to the, to, to the Greens and, and uh, what, what do you think their perspective of growth is? I mean, at the moment, they've got a power base amongst the professional middle class in the inner city, uh, in Sydney and Melbourne and elsewhere. Um, how can they potentially break out into working class areas and become a genuine threat to the left? From the left, I should say, yeah. to the likes of the Labour Party, or can that happen? Yes, I don't know. Yeah, As a professional middle class in a city wanker, I don't, I don't know if I'm the best. Um, I'm the look, king I'm, of them, mate. They voted me. <laughs> <on the five laughs> I'm not shitting at my own people. Yes. Glad yeah. you said it. <laughs> um, look, you know, yes, I'm also a big fan of Adam, but I think you and I share a, an admiration for what's happening in the Queensland Greens. You know, you've got Michael Berkman, Amy McMahon, recently, you know, get, get, getting re-elected on a really yes, on the tree as well on a really explicitly. You know, socialist. I interviewed um, Amy, and you know, she'd have to publicly identify as a socialist. Um, big picture, bold, populist. You know, tax mining billionaires to, to make public health care actually free. Um, I think the Victorian Greens are a different position, and a fair bit of work needs to be done, particularly from young people coming to the party to to watermelon it up. Um, mm -hmm. But I just, you know, I I swallowed my pride and my you know, need for perfection and the perfect being the enemy of the good and just say this is a party that for the most part reflects my values. They don't take political donations. They talk about making dental and health care and I think at the heart of Adam Band is a, is a socialist or at least social democratic program that I can try and work and, and, and get on board. And I live in the, the sort of inner west now, Footscray area, which is sort of Jelly Brand, this new, new seat, Fraser as well, which is liberal, uh, Labour heartland rather. Fraser. Fraser. Oh, right. Fraser. I was going to say, <laughs> I think Fraser would be a better name. So. 
Fraser, um, which has been Labour heartland for decades and decades and decades, but that Labour vote is going down and down. I think there is a dissatisfaction, a frustration with Labour that can be capitalised on and over a long period of time, you know, potentially you could turn those kind of seats green. But I guess we need to make it clear what that means. And someone made it a very good point to me. They said, if you care about, if climate change is your number one issue, you're probably voting for the Greens. The issue now is to say, if you, you know, to make a class appeal and make, and make it clear that the Greens party can be a party for, for working people that centres economic justice at, at the heart of their program as well. Um, that's a huge project, turning it from within the party. I'm pretty new to it, but I think it can happen. And I, I guess I'm taking my cues from Queensland Greens to, to sort of make that happen, yeah. Guy, just, just following up from that, I mean, um, do you think that is possible um, to, for, the, for the Greens to break out of their inner city stronghold? Um, it seems to me one of the contradictions is that the Green leaders openly sort of say that they'd like to, like their goal would be to be a junior coalition party with the ALP nationally and a state level. But every time they've actually done that in Tassie, Ireland, Germany, it's been a disaster electorally for the Greens because the Labour Party or the Social Democratic parties have quite cleverly given them the shittest portfolios and <laughs> let them cop the, you know, the, 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 the feedback from The ACT them. though, we should, we should point out the ACT is in that case. The ACT, the coalition government has sort of have grown and Greens were returned and actually increased the representation in the last... Oh, that's fair call. I didn't know. It's because the ACT Labour is reasonably to the left, sure. isn't it? It is yeah, a, it's true. a left coalition. Look, no. I think the Greens are a contradictory party. They are, you know, as I've said once or twice or 700 times in crikey, the, <laughs> they are the party that represents the knowledge class. They are a class party, but they began as a sort of universalist party, a party they just, you know, said, we appeal to everybody who cares about the planet and that sort of thing. They represent um, the imperatives and demands of the knowledge class, which is a particular mix of left social democracy and, you know, an imperative on things like same-sex marriage and a whole lot of other stuff. And to a degree, you know, in the, the Di Natale years, they did lose a focus on actual green issues at the, you know, at the expense of the social issues that were driving membership and driving support and, and driving profile. And, and that sort of thing. Um, you would expect that the sort of people who are in that knowledge class would be social democratic, but not always in their own interests. They would just simply see that society has to be run. You have to have trade unions with, with a certain amount of power. You have to have a public sector. Um, you have to have a, a, a push towards fairness and that sort of thing. You know, Adam Band in Melbourne, has, in the seat of Melbourne, has shown that you can then add other groups um, who will become loyal to the Greens because they get something out of it and expand their politics, and that's, you know, refugees, the African residents... Public housing tenants. Yeah, so public housing tenants. Yeah. You know, the African Australians in Flemington and that sort of thing. And that, that sort of thing is the sort of... It's a sort of, you know, Italian Euro-communist model of building an ever-greater coalition, but not simply based around whatever everybody in that coalition wants as a sort of grab bag. Um, the pro I, didn't, I don't think the Greens will ever be a... Well, look, they might have a Syriza moment whereby the crisis in the rest of the system um, is so insoluble that everybody goes, the Greens are the only So just answer. for the punters, the Greek far-left party yeah, that yeah. went from like 2% to taking power. Yeah, yeah. that some everybody, you know, and you come in and you pick up power like, like a feather and then you fuck it up, um, <laughs> you know, basically. Um, but, but that sort of thing, everything goes into crisis 
and you become the natural party of government. And that, that's a real possibility for the Greens at some point Tom in the will future. Be in that you know, um, <laughs> that's Ready to fuck fair. it up for everyone. <laughs> but, with, but in before that, I don't think, and I've argued this for years with the Greens, that they can ever break far out of that, of the class they're in. They spent a lot of time for about 10 years trying to get farmers to vote for them. Farmers who supported them, farmers who said, thank you, thank you for fighting for me in the Liverpool Plains and that sort of thing. And then they turned around and voted for the National Party and mm. it happened time and time again. Because politics isn't, isn't simply a calculus of interests. It's about representation of identity and emotionality and that sort of thing. So there's a whole bunch of people who could just never identify with the Greens. Because in a way, they see the Greens as the representative of the next ruling class, which is the knowledge class. So one of the key things that's happening at the moment is, is the breakup of this old new left coalition, which lasted for decades between the Bohemians, the intelligentsia, the trendies, the progressives, whatever, and the, the broader working class. You know, that's, they are starting to define themselves against each other. How you bridge that gap again I don't know, but I would... We need a new Jack Mundy. Well, I, yeah, pop, there's a certain type of populism that you need. You need a language that talks the language of the concrete. You know, the great split in public conception of how the world works is between the abstract and the concrete in our era. Abstract, you know, people who are at home in abstract systems, which is green voters and the lunch class and that sort of thing, and people who are increasingly marooned by abstract systems there... They're in the concrete, they're, they're process workers or they're craft workers or they're tradies or they're retail workers or whatever. Um, they never got access to the education that would get them into that abstraction or they were never part of that. And increasingly, they are finding themselves in a world which not only is giving power to the abstractionists, it's devaluing their skills, their culture, their world, saying it's sexist and racist and... And, and old-fashioned and, and that sort of thing. Alison, um, you were going to yeah. ask. Sorry. No, no, I was going to finish your point. Yeah, yeah. so I'll, sorry, I'll, I'll yeah. round up, sorry. Um, and that, it seems to me that what would work much more is, is coalitions between the Greens on the one hand and populist parties, which aren't right-wing populist, but they talk a simpler language, they appeal to a mix of policy, policies, you know, look at the Tasmanian... But, but how can that happen when the Greens locally are Thatcherite. Like you, like, like you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, lo lots of people in this area love Adam Bant and yeah. love Green at the federal level, but they hate the Greens locally because they're slashing recycling, yeah, that's a struggle. destroying local sports that's clubs. That's a struggle with so it. That's, that's a problem that the Greens have to yeah. sort out. I think yeah. it's possible to sort it out. Yeah. But at the but moment, that's a real weight around their neck. See, if I was looking at... Adam Bant's bleeding votes at the moment because of the Arab Greens. Yeah, absolutely. Not you personally, Tom. Yeah, and that's why. <laughs> <laughs> Just look, the look Yes. At, Look at, look, at, West, mate. look at Tasmania, it's you know, <laughs> the Greens once had five seats in Tasmania and looked like they could get more. And as you say, they then joined government and, and screwed it up. But it wasn't just joining government. It was also that that was the start of the period when these two classes were starting to come apart. Now, the Greens are never going to win five seats again in Tasmania. But if you ran a campaign in northern Tasmania which was not Jackie Lambiest all over the shop, but solid workerist. It was about the health system, government services, that sort of thing. 
but it Referencing also, the Greens and vice versa. Well, yeah, yeah it could, but yeah. it doesn't. The point, the important point is to eschew some of the things that the Greens find obsessive, some of the social issues. Just say, you know, where, you know, that's a conscience vote. Oh, that's a conscience vote. All we're about is North Tasmania. All we're about is the health system. Mm. All we're about is jobs. All we're about is Devonport and unionisation. They're all about is this, this and this and this. We're there for you, you know. Don't talk about that other stuff. Don't make someone who's, who's sitting there who's got left-wing economic, you know, sort of um, uh, orientations feel they have to sign up to every every green sort of perspective in order to, to support a left-wing candidate. That's Alison and then Jeff. Sorry. No, do not apologise. Fascinating. Yeah. I... I uh, one of the key problems with the environmental movement is it keeps talking about climate crisis. Life for working class people every day is a fucking crisis. And I think until um, we can build bridges between a program of strong rights for organised labour to improve wages and conditions and material conditions for people so they can imagine what it's like to read a book and learn about the bees all dying or what it means, what climate change really means, um, I think that the, the Greens politics is going to suffer and it's not going to resonate with people. I think. So sue me for being very traditional in this sense, but uh, I come from, I think, the last dying embers of Australia's working class institutions of, you know, unions and footy clubs and community groups and a strong independent working class politics. And I think if I can't, if I can't join a party and, and be able to democratically elect the leadership, then I can't reasonably go about my life as a working person and say to others, like, your life's going to change because you're going to be in power. You're going to be empowered to make, to make choices and be a part of, democratically uh, participate in your party politics. If I can't say that, it's very hard for me to sell the Greens to people. That's why I'm not a member. Mm. Um, and for me, they're no different than from the ALP, which actually provide more democratic rights to their rank and file than the Greens do at this point. Mm. Um, until we get to that point, I think talking about like coalitions and the right number of Greens to partner with a certain amount of people, like. That's all bullshit. Like either you, you go to people and you say, this is for you, this is going to make your life better, be a part of it and fight for it, or we do something else, you know? And in my case, something else means building up the labour movement and independent working class politics because we sure as hell know that the left will never build without that independent capacity of organised labour. Jeff, do you want to add to that? Yeah, look, I, I, I don't have any great advice for how to build mass parties. I mean, I spent 13 years in Trotsky's group, so we never built any mass organisation, so... And feel, you know. Didn't know that about you. <laughs> yeah, but you know, and then if if I were to join another organisation, it would be a Trotskyist organisation. <laughs> but with that being said, um, I think in the coming years, one of the things you can say about um, climate change is that it's a crisis multiplier. So we were talking before about the um, drive to unionise Amazon. So that's driven by the fact that people in Amazon warehouses are in essentially, you know, Victorian conditions that they, you know. People are wearing adult diapers because they don't, they're not able to go to the toilet during work shifts. It's not just that, though. Part of this current um, drive is because the, the um, Amazon factories all over the world have become um, hotbeds of, um, of, of COVID infection. Now, COVID isn't directly a result of the climate crisis, but it's not unrelated to the climate crisis. It's an effect of the deforestation and factory farming and so on. And so that's intensifying the, 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 the need to unionise in, in, in Amazon because people there are being infected at horrific rates. And the other aspect of it, of course, is that um, 
the Amazon factories are notoriously overheated. People are regularly, like, because they're walking constantly and they're monitored the entire time to make sure that they walk the requisite amount, they're constantly collapsing from overheat. But of course, it's getting hotter all the time. And so the, the conditions inside these factories are getting worse materially because of climate change. It's the same, um, Elizabeth Humphreys has just published a, a paper, someone, a lot of people here will know, talking about the um, construction industry in mm. New South Wales. With us, it, the Centre for Future in, Work. Indeed, and, and the effect of the, the climate crisis and radiant heat on um, construction workers in Sydney. And I think increasingly, this will be part of people's experiences. In, in Australia, of course, we saw it with the bushfires. You know, if you lived in Western Sydney, <laughs> you know, the bushfires were not some abstraction about climate change. You couldn't fucking breathe when you were outside your house. So I think that these kinds of issues will be forced upon people, whether they like them or, um, or not, and they will be increasingly part of the conversation going forward. Just two more questions, one to you, Tom. Um, I don't know if, but first of all, just to backtrack, if you haven't seen The Drum two episodes ago, it's on iView with Alison on it. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, watch it. Um, on YouTube, Adam Curtis's new movie, Can't Get You Out of My Head. I mean, I think most of you would have seen it. It's just breathtaking. It's in four parts. It's just the best thing I've seen for a long, long time. But he interviews, um, or he shows footage of uh, uh, Fanny Shakur, the woman, Black, act, uh, Black Panther um, activist, um, who was a revolutionary and absolutely amazing work that she did. Obviously, that movement was defeated. Her son tried to take those politics into music. I thought of you when I was watching this, believe it or not. Her, her son was Tupac Shakur. Yes, and, um, I'm often confused. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, insofar as, you know, you're, 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 you're a leftist, you're a socialist, you're a Green Party member, um, but you're an entertainer. And you obviously, it's quite clear that you, you try to bring politics, not crudely, but try to bring politics into your stuff. He got demoralized by his inability to bring his mother's politics into hip hop, and he ended up dead. Um, and I just wonder. Um, no, no, okay, that was a bit extreme, but. Did, it's my comedy show, which is on the comedy festival right now. This is the best Parkinson's episode ever. So, I mean, like, what's the role of culture, in your opinion, in the struggle for social change? Very, very small. I mean, that, that is the. I found it very, uh, very moving, very depressing, but a big part of Adam Curtis's piece, but also my move to materialism. Did you also enjoy the show? Like? I loved it. I think an incredible documentary. Yeah, He's always great. Uh, the Mayfest set as well is amazing. And watch that if you can. I love culture. I love performing it. I love making people laugh. I love consuming culture. There is something human and something that speaks to the, 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 the human spirit and makes life better, makes being alive better. But the investment we have in culture being a serious movement for social change is misguided. It is liberal politics. I think it's a big part of particularly my generation thinking that like this is all we have. This is, it's almost like we've lost faith in the union movement or politics actually being able to change our country or our world. So we need to, I don't know, watch the right TV shows or the TV shows need to have the right people on it and then that will make things better. Mm. And, you know, a big thing in my head... Uh, find landing on materials politics over the past couple of years is the recognition that culture is downstream from politics, not the other way around. Um, so, so yes, uh, that's kind of a depressing thing. But if you just, if you just accept the fact as an entertainer that it's like, what I do is for fun, it can build a level of solidarity amongst people who might come to my shows and enjoy me saying that Scott Morrison's a fuckhead, that's good, but it's not politics. Mm. Um, 
hence you know me joining the greens or me trying to get more involved and do things materially in, in the real world that actually changes things because the emphasis on culture as as a serious um, a serious sign of social change is is very misguided I would say but also can I say hence how powerful it is to have people like you holding this space because as people flock to escape mm. from politics actually what they're doing is confronting <laughs> politics in some ways yes, you know yes. and I think like I have um, coming from an artistic background, but <laughs> nowhere near um, like as developed as yours. I just I have so much respect for your work and the work of artists, and you know, co like comedians are. In it's an incredibly difficult and of all the artistic fields, I think it's like hardcore. Like I think it's really difficult stuff. So. Oh, I think, thank you for your efforts in that space. <laughs> yeah, it's not as difficult as working in a coal mine. Yeah. I mean, the point, the point that, that Curtis films make is that... <laughs> it's just is culture, cutting out that <laughs> sorry, whole I just thing. You're very nice, but he's probably right. Yeah, <laughs> Culture and identity, you know, determine us to such a degree. And, and Curtis's point is that all happened, the switchover happened in the 70s with the defeat of those grand political arcs that came from the end of the Second World War. Mm. And it is almost impossible now, you know, we're sort of, if you like, activist professionals, but for a vast number of people, it is almost impossible to get them to think outside the terms of the hyper-individual um, and culture as shaping the meaning of their life. And that's something we really have to deal with, you know, that's, that is not easily solved. That is that's the basis on which I thanked Tom for his contribution. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> people weren't coming in front of those institutions. But it, it is an epochal, you know, as Curtis's point makes, it's such an epochal moment that it leaves you, you know, in a framework in which a certain type of politics is more or less impossible. Mm -hmm. To, if I can quote a, a bit of my own in the show that I'm doing at the moment that I really enjoy doing, which is, you know, left-wing culture, right-wing economics. It's bullshit. We should swap. We should have left-wing economics, redistribute wealth, nationalise the commanding heights of the economy, democratise the workplace, and in return, Sam Newman's back on the footy show, Alan Jones hosts <laughs> the project, and Hamilton is replaced by Blackface the Musical, right? Now, it would be an annoying culture to live in, but you would never have to pay for the dentist ever again. I think that would be, that would be cooler. <laughs> Just, Ideally, the I don't accept the trade-off. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what Melbourne audiences... I don't want Sam Newman on my television. I don't own a television. So. Um, <laughs> yes, Melbourne's been totally great. So, do you think that the art of convincing people has been lost? Like, it's all media pylons now. You put a foot out of... You know, you put a foot out... You're, 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 you're piled on, on, on social media. 99% of the time, that can be correct. So, I'm not commenting on... I'm not trying to defend people who talk shit, but... Um, what I notice is, for example, we've got a big debate around here at the moment about a supervised injecting facility. A lot of punters pissed about its location. A lot of the left just think they're a bunch of nimbies. Mm. They're a bunch of deplorables. Um, and the liberals have just capitalized on that. I've tried it. They've run around the high-rise estate in Richmond with petitions and, and all the rest of it. And the, that art, like when I was trained as a kid, like you know, convincing people of your, of your point of view, um, especially working-class people who might be a bit clunky with wordage, but actually will stick with you on the picket line a hundred times down the line. Um, do you think that art has been lost? And like, I just feel quite alone in many of the battles that we face on the ground um, at the present moment in time. And the left are, you know, talking about fucking climate change and the war in Afghanistan and all the rest of it, but there's shit going on right in front of them that they can do both at the same time. I mean, Sinn Féin did that, Black Panthers did that, ANC did that, but like, 
it seems that the left or right so up their own arse that they're not interested in day-to-day -day issues and that they're going to miss out on that. They're going to miss out on big opportunities. Or do you think I've got that wrong? I mean, like, well, go Sorry. Forgive yeah, me, um, Steve, because like, my perspective as someone on the left is that there is no left in Australia. Like, I think we're really suffering from the presence of an organised, uh, useful left force in any way. So I think... Um, I diagnose, you know, or, or I see whatever elements are left are the dying embers of the, the, the new left. And the new left was a reaction to Stalinism. And the new leftism um, is, yeah, tiny small groups that don't relate to working people at all. So in terms of the conversations that, that happen between working people out in Australia, like the left is not a thing that they, they know. Totally. Like they would actually, I think the, the mainstay is they look at the coalition and they think like, geez, I have to deal with these guys or choose them between them and, you know, Albo and like the Labour Party didn't make a good case for themselves. But a lot of the case, a lot of the time, both parties don't appeal to them. And I think there's something that's not being spoken to and that's what the left is supposed to exist to do. So I think we should be clear that what we're talking about when we say the left, like I think we should be, be careful actually is what I'm saying because um, the, the identity politics shift and the designation of what was the left was actually being shouted about what we were from the right. They were creating something that they, were, they could react to. Think of Mark Latham when he put out his op-eds about the Marxist cultural left that are coming for everyone, mm. right? Like they've manifested something that doesn't really exist. Mm. So I think we should be clear about that being part of the attack on us, but then us also recognising organisationally like we're non-existent. There is a, the, on the Spectator YouTube channel, Rowan Dean is, welcomes you into the, the channel and walks through a door that says no woke zone with a picture of Marx with a line through it. So it's just like, it's wokeism, it's cultural Marxism, that, that, that is the perception for, for people who aren't that engaged every day, now and again, that yeah, leftism, Marxism is, you know, cancel culture or is PC mm -hmm. gone mad kind of thing, right? They're, they're all thrown together as presented as the left. As, whereas, you know, on a deep level, on a just a basic material reality, I think people can say that they could recognise, or at least they thought the Labour was for the worker. Labour Party was for the worker and the boss sucked and they were sort of, you know, trying to in some way fight for ordinary working people. So when... And I think when Labour Party gets back to that stuff, it's on much, much more solid mm. ground. You, it does mm. make sense okay. to you. But ideology is just gone, right? That's a huge part of the neoliberal era. So... The Labor Party will back Matthias Cormann for this this um, uh, what the OECD position, yeah. right? Now I know most people don't care about that, sure. Yeah. But it's just like, what do you what do you stand for? Like, what, don't you recognise that he is committed to an economic agenda that has fucked over working people, that has increased inequality, and doesn't give a shit about climate change? Why are you backing this guy for this position if you don't oppose to him on some kind of ideological ground? That's a very specific example, but it's just sort of something to me where ideology doesn't seem to matter anymore and. It's all just about technical managers of a country, and you know, do you trust Elbow more than Scoma, as opposed to what is the political agenda? What do you actually stand mm. for as a party? Like, what's at the ideological heart of, of the movement and your fundamental sort of outlook and values? You know, I mean, the thing is, from the '60s to into the '90s, you could say there was, and maybe starting from the '50s, there was something called the New Left, which was a grand coalition of what was not yet the knowledge class, smaller groups of the intelligentsia and that sort of thing with the organised working class with a shared agenda of transforming society mm. economically, um, you know, politically, that sort of thing. Now, a whole lot of the, those people in the working class may actually have been socially conservative, 
and, and not concerned with the things that were in the interest of the intelligentsia. But everybody was interested in shifting power, yeah. shifting, you know, the relationships of power and who controlled what uh, and that sort of thing in a very hidebound societies. Now, what you, and that's what gave it a tremendous amount of energy. It was that you were changing your, the general interest was also your particular interest. You know, they were fused together in, in, in that sort of thing. So you were willing to put your time into going to a boring meeting or, or whatever in terms of it was a meaningful activity. At some point, it stopped being a meaningful activity for millions of people because it became an administered society, but also because a lot of those things had been half won. You know, they weren't fully won, but things were sort of kind of liberal enough and good enough for you to return to your private life, to return to what was then emerging in the 90s, which was a sort of, you know, a cornucopia of entertainment, <laughs> a cornucopia of possibilities. You. you know, the 60s were about, you know, you couldn't, in the 60s, you couldn't go to a film on Sunday because the church controlled the laws. So you had to fight for something like that, you know, all these basic things. You couldn't run a disco, da-da-da-da-da. By the time, you know, so that was the path to your desires. That was the path to your liberation. By the time of the 90s and the 2000s, the path to your liberation is what is offered on Netflix, what is offered on the internet, what is offered going out, that sort of thing. Those things have been one. And then the other thing happens, which you can see in the safe injecting facility things, which is that the interests and the mental frameworks and cultural frameworks of the organised working class and the new classes, whatever one calls them, start to come into contradiction and start to be actually oppositional. And not merely oppositional in terms of interests, but oppositional in terms of identity definition. Um, and, and that's what seems to be happening that's what seems to be a demobilising force among at least sections of the working class. The politics, that they, there is an actual politics there, but it's a politics of resistance by refusal. Um, when it's not alt-right politics, it's a politics of saying, they're all the same, I'm disengaged, I'm pursuing my private life, um, that sort of thing. So, so it's a tremendously complex process, but that's what you've got at the moment. But look at the fact that you still have, you know, something like that safe injecting facility meeting. There are still hundreds of people turning up to argue worldviews, to argue different ways of saying this is how society should work. So, so on the one hand, there's still actual tremendous engagement, but it just doesn't map into what we knew in the post-war era and what we were accustomed to and what we're finding very difficult to acknowledge is completely over. Jeff, I'll give you the last word tonight. I mean, what's your best case scenario for the left in the next five years? Yes, yeah, so I want to be really careful about this because when I when I was an activist, like I used to get really annoyed about people who would tell me that they had some way that the left could be rebuilt. Because you must have had this as well, Steve. You know, you, you'd be working so hard, you know, doing all this stuff, and somebody would tell you, if only you did this, if only you did that, the left would be reunited. You think, well, fuck, if you know how to do it, why don't you yeah, go ahead and to go ahead and, and do it? And I think, you know. A, like I said earlier, there's no there's no magical solution to the problem that we're in. But I mean, in terms of the general point that you you you, you raised, I mean, I agree. There is no way forward that consists of berating ordinary people and telling them that they're scum and they're stupid and they need to be managed. So I'm totally down with that point. But you know, 
I wrote a book that, you know, that was one of the, the main points that I tried to make. And the problem that I had was when you go around trying to promote that, you say this, you know, that we shouldn't be, you know, talking down to people. We shouldn't be abusing ordinary people and we shouldn't, you know, the problem with the left is they're just trying to manage ordinary people. And the people who would support you when you would say that would all be all these reactionaries who would then just say, yeah, you should work with racists, you should work with sexists. <laughs> and so the, the, the other part of that argument is that if you take ordinary people seriously, if you actually think ordinary people can, can, you know, can be a, a subject of history and not just an object, then you have to... You, you, you have to um, take them seriously enough to actually argue with them. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not a question of simply saying, well, whatever your ideas are, that's mm. fine. I it's actually it. engaging with them and saying, yeah. if, if, you're sex, if you're sexist, that's a problem and it's a mistake and you're wrong and here's why you're wrong. And so I think it's those two things um, together that are, are really important. Not condemning everyone as fuckwits and scum or whatever, but simultaneously not simply saying whatever you think is yes. fine and, and and just finally in terms of the, 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 the in terms of the future I mean look you know the left is in a terrible state you know things are pretty bad at the same time um, I do think we are living in a world that is in a state of crisis that it has not been in recent history you know the, the, we're living on top of a powder keg at the moment and and the ruling class are playing with matches you know that the, the climate crisis is not resolved it is only going to get worse and what getting worse means is well you know we saw it with catastrophic bushfires in australia well if if, the, if what the scientists saying are saying is true that was not an anomaly that is what we're going to expect in the future not just one year but year after year after year after year. What happens when, when, when that is the future that people have to look forward? I mean, I, I think we are heading for some kind of radicalism. It might not be a radicalism of the left, it might be a radicalism of the right, but I think you can be fairly confident that society is not gonna go on in the, way, in the shape and, and the way that it is, is today. And so, you know, that's an opportunity. It's also a threat. You know, that's that's the situation that we're in, I reckon. It's an unstable situation and the future will not be the same as, as it is today. Jeff Sparrow, Alison Bennington, Tom Ballard, Guy Rondell, thanks for coming on Melbourne Calling. It's been great. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Cheers.